HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. Hello, welcome to Japan Needs. I'm your host, Aki Katema, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine and America. And it's April 6th, and I uh, hope everybody's uh, staying safe and in uh, good spirits as well. So, we normally broadcast live from our studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, but our studio is currently closed due to the outbreak of COVID-19 caused by coronavirus, as everybody knows. So we are recording this episode remotely from my Brooklyn apartment, and so is my guest. And it may sound a little different than usual, but please bear with us. So this show is all about Japanese food and food culture. That's why it's called Japan Eats. And we see sushi at every daily in the supermarket, but what if we own sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is too mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is Shinobu Kato, who is the owner and brewer of Kato Sake Works in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Shinobu soft opened his sake brewery just a few weeks ago, right before everything got started uh, due to coronavirus, and that um, he was dreaming about and carefully planning this new second brewery while he was working as IT project manager at a major corporation in the U.S. As you may know, New York City already has a first second brewery called Brooklyn Club in Industry City, Brooklyn, which opened in 2017. The owners Brian Pollan and Brandon Dawn joined us twice to discuss the experience of opening and managing the Crush Sake Brewery outside Japan. Now, here's Shinobu who is born and raised in Japan, making sake with his own philosophy of brewing sake. So today we'll discuss how Shinobu got into sake, his life philosophy, which is interesting, that prompted him to a new career, and his authentic yet very local style of sake, and much, much more. But quickly before you start, Japan Needs is available on Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as, and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Also, if you have any questions or requests for short topics or guests, please let us know. 
You can email us at Japanese at the Heritage Radio Network.org or kikodema.com. Now let's start a conversation with Shinobu Kato. Hello, Shinobu. Welcome. Hello, Akiko san. Thank you very much for having me. So, this is really exciting.、Um, yeah. <laughs> so, a couple of weeks ago, we met at your brewery, not knowing what's going to happen, but yeah, your sake was amazing. So, congratulations. Thank you very much. So, let's talk about who you are. So, where from and what did you eat when you grew up? All right, so I was born and grew up in Tokyo, a small neighborhood called Koenji. So, that's a small town, probably like 10 minutes train ride from the city center of Tokyo. So,、mm-hmm. kind of same proximity of Bushwick to、uh, you know, Manhattan. And、uh, it's, it's a very residential and a commercial mixture of both. Oh,、uh, but there's no big businesses, but more like a small restaurants, bars, and shops. And it has like a hippie culture. So people feel like it was like a time travel 20 years ago in Tokyo, kind of a、uh, spa. And,、uh, you know, there's a lot of ramen shops and yakitori, zakaya, something like that.、Uh, what I grew up to eat,、uh, I was、uh, raised by my grandparents, and then they love junk food. So, my grandpa hated fish and he loved, you know, fried food, tonkatsu, and ramen and gyoza. And my grandpa didn't like to cook. So, every time me and my grandpa, grandma were together, she was like, Hey, Shinobu, do you want to have McDonald's? Do you want to go to KFC? Hey, do you want to have instant noodles or hey, Domino pizzas? So, that's how I grew up with. Well, my parents. Were completely different, and then they used to own a small izakaya. And、uh, my dad, when I was a small, small kid, used to take, take me to a tsukiji market every, I don't remember which day, but every, you know, every week, and then did a fish shopping. My mom never ate junk food, and she, you know, she still, I have not, never seen her eating McDonald's or KSC. So I kind of did a you know, combination of both sides. Right, so yeah, it sounds like I really asked this question because it really shows who you are based <laughs> on what you ate, and you're a really great mixture of you know, Japan and America. So <laughs> it's already started when you, you grew up.、Um, yeah, I didn't know that you, your parents had a izakaya, so that's interesting. Yes. So, and you came to the States in 2004 to attend business school, and, but what did you do before you came to the States? So, I, I went to the college, you know, typical college for partying, you know, had a bunch of cheap sake, you know, quantity over quality, you know, college school life. And then、uh, I worked at a company called SoftBank. I think now it's kind of、uh, famous in the US thanks to like WeWork investment and a Splint takeover, those kind of things. But at that time, it was just a small internet venture company. And I was just working as a typical Japanese salaryman. So, you know, wearing a suit, commute in a packed train, and、uh, 9 a.m. to midnight type of work. So that was what I was doing.、Mm. Well, SoftBank is it's huge. You made it modest, but it's a big deal. So,、oh, right now, yes, but <laughs> at, at that time, no. Right.、Um, and I heard that、uh, it was your boss in Japan when you were at SoftBank、uh, who inspired you to get into sake. So, Can you tell us about that? 
Yes, yes. So, you know, before joining the company, you know, college drinking was, you know, you drink whatever available cheapest. And, and I think <laughs> the same is true in the US, right? Like, you guys had a cheap bad beers here. You know, I heard the beer called, you know, a lot of bad beers. But we did the same thing in college. I, I drank a lot of, you know, cheapest sake available in the market. Uh, once I start working in the in the company, you know, Japanese uh, work culture is uh, very different. So people work together from you know morning till the midnight, but go out for drinks and then you know dinner on almost every day together, right? Mm. And also with the seniority system, usually it's the boss who pays a bill, and uh, I I never touch the bill. Well, I pretend to pay, but that never happened. Oh, <laughs> uh, and then. Uh, so he was like my mentor, something like that, and he knew that I had a horrible, you know, palate for sake. And uh, we started going out, and one time, oh, we go to a nice fancy izakaya in Lopongi, or you know, the, uh, near near Lopongi. It's much quieter side of Lopongi, and uh, they have a great, you know, sushi and another other nice upscale izakaya menu with a very great uh, sake. Uh, menus and mm. uh, by the time I was uh, kind of exposed to a better craft sake thanks to my boss but the sake that I or well, he ordered for me at the time was a co- from the brewery called the Kokuryu oh mm. it's it's a it's a brewery in Fukui a 200 years old brewery and they had a limited edition called uh, Daiginjo Shizuku so Shizuku mm-hmm. is like a droplet, and uh, now I know what that is, but it's a, a gently pressed without pressure, a uh, very fancy daiginjo. Uh, mm-hmm. And that kind of struck me like, oh, it's completely different. I never had a really good sake, and I like sake, you know? Mm-hmm. So that was a kind of, you know, a life-changing moment to me. And then after that, I continued, you know, exploring more sake. So, you know, during the college time, it, it was a quantity over quality. After after that incident, it became more like qual- quantity and quality. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> right. That's interesting. Everyone has, in the sake business, it's not unusual to hear, you know, the glass of sake. Like, um, for example, yeah. Tim Sullivan, who came to the show, and uh, he worked, he's a brand ambassador for Hakkai-san. And his first sake was Hakkai-san sake. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, so listeners, everybody, whoever gets to drink some nice special sake, you should try to remember. That might change your life. So, <laughs> um, so you worked for such a great company with a wonderful boss. So, but you decided to leave that nice job and came to the States in 2004 to attend business school. So why did you do that? Well, I, I, I enjoyed my job. It was, you know, hardworking job, but at the same time, quite rewarding. And uh, my boss was nice, of course. And uh, I had a great food and the sake in Tokyo. So it was quite comfortable, but probably I felt a little bit too comfortable, maybe. You know, when you've been in the comfortable zone for a long time, the life becomes more like autopilot, and mm. uh, you don't have to be on the driver's seat, but, you know, the life will take you 
to the whatever the destination that the road you know leads to right and mm-hmm. i was like okay maybe i need a little more challenge and uh, i knew that you know my work and my life was more kind of confined in tokyo and japan and i knew that there's a bunch of things outside of that small comfortable world of tokyo so i think that's that's the reason that i decided to to leave the, the country yeah Mm. Well, I think the majority of us never think there's no too comfortable <laughs> place. So, yeah, it's amazing how much you're aware of who you are. And, uh, well, here's uh, my favorite quote. So, well, listeners, uh, Shinobu's amazing website. It's a personal website that really describes his journey up to this point. It's called uh, shinobukato.com. And he quotes on his website uh, from... Uh, left by the Brazilian writer, um, Paulo Coelho, 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 sorry, my Portuguese bad. And to live is to experience things, not sit around pondering the meaning of life. That is really, you walk the talk, amazing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, somebody told me that I have to do some self-blending and then I set up the (laughs) website and then I kind of, you know, it's a bit embarrassing, but yeah. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I, I usually never go through somebody's website that I did with yours so thoroughly, but I think it's really worth going through. It's really, yeah, I was so touched many times. Okay. Um, yeah, so after you graduated from, uh, so you went to the Robert M. Smith School of Business at the University of Maryland and earned an MBA, and you worked for Nissan uh, Corporation in Nashville, Tennessee, as product manager in the IT department. And uh, I heard that the, that was when you started making sake. So how did it happen? So in Nashville, or again, it was quite comfortable life in Nashville with a you know, big, big house, big backyard, something like that. And uh, me and my wife started throwing parties to my you know, local friend in Nashville. Oh, so we love cooking. So we cook some Japanese food not like sushi or, you know, those fancy stuff, but more like a day-to-day uh, Japanese otsumami type of thing, and uh, invited uh, dozens of our friends to the parties. The mm-hmm. problem that we had was, oh, there was no sake to pair with at the parties. So, you know, I didn't want to go back to my college drink sake. <laughs> right? I've already graduated from that. But at the same right. time, it's hard for me to find a kokuryu in Nashville. Or, mm. you know, just to be fair, there were a couple of good liquor stores in Nashville, and then they carried a nice uh, sake that I like, but they are like three times overpriced, and uh, I didn't have that big budget for the party, right? Mm. So, and, um, you know, you can tell all my friends are drinkers, so they drink a lot. So I ended up, yeah, I ended up having like a small keg of IPA from the local brewery or like, you know, get a, you know, box of wine, you know, dozens of wine from the local winery, something like that. And uh, I I felt the shame. You know, the same thing happened when I go to a, like a local sushi restaurant that, you know, they have a decent sushi available in, in Nashville. Uh, and uh, there are a couple of places that I used to go, but their sake menu is either the no-brand, you know, hot sake, two-for-one happy hour hot sake, 
or something a little too too expensive than the actual value and mm. we ended up drinking like a glass of chardonnay and right. always like it's a shame right so and then at that time i had a couple of friends who started home brewing beer and mm. also i frequented uh craft breweries local breweries in the area and started talking with the brewers there so you know making beer becomes more kind of uh close to me and I, I was thinking about it maybe i should start brewing something what should i brew oh yeah sake because there's no sake available mm. so that's how i started uh brewing i never thought i'd start uh, my own brewery but that's how i started to sake mm. so out of necessity that always works yes. right for something good. <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> yeah but uh you know i i know many people who try to make sake or something you know beer or kombucha or anything but um what made you to decide that you would leave another good corporate job at nissan and start your own sake brewery in the u.s mm, so uh, probably the same reason that i decided to come to the u.s but you know after i i i was with nissan for close to 10 years and uh, it was an interesting job i had a you know team of software engineers you know on on site offshore you know or implementing the software solutions here and there so it was kind of interesting but at some point it becomes it became a little too comfortable to me mm-hmm. and uh you know the life became autopilot again mm-hmm. and uh i need i needed the challenge and then you know if i go back 10 years ago i didn't come to the us to find another comfortable life here so what right. i'm doing was my question the challenge i had was as a foreigner it's hard for me to do something because of my uh visa status right mm. you need to have a sponsor like a corporate sponsor to you know sponsor your Uh, immigration status and it took long time for me to get the green card but right. without a green card you cannot even you know quit the company well it's possible but it's hard right mm-hmm. so yeah. yeah but i got a green card and then also at the same time my wife got a job offer in tokyo and she was like oh this is my dream job so i should go to 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 tokyo for this job whatever you know i support you whatever you do but this is my my dream job so i should go to tokyo and mm. uh, so you know i was like okay i'm i'm Nash- nashville tennessee but i'm kind of down with my corporate life there what should i do oh by the way there's a there's a problem with all the sake shortage or whatever the sake that i cannot serve at the party I I know how to make sake. Can I make that as a as a real solution, like economical solution for as a business? So that's that's how I kind of started more serious. Right. And I also heard that one of your friends uh wanted to buy your sake. That's when you got convinced that you can make it into a real business. Yeah. So, oh, her name was Sara and she was uh, she is a good friend of mine. Oh, but she never had had a good sake. She had a sake. So like she was like a typical average American consumer that when you go to a sushi restaurant you order house sake, hot sake, the one in a uh, uh, white calf with you know piping hot loving alcohol kind of sake. And mm-hmm. she confessed me that hey I never liked sake. 
Although, you know, every time I go to sushi restaurant, I order sake, but I never liked it. And when she had my sake, she told me that, hey, this is the first time I like sake and I enjoy drinking sake. I want to drink more sake. Oh, wow. can I can I buy your sake? I want to bring your bottle to my uh, family's Thanksgiving dinner and then give that to my parents and then, uh, grandparents. Oh, so God. yeah, so that so that was a kind of moment that I started thinking, okay, yeah, this has been my problem, but maybe this can solve other people's problem at the same time. Mm. Right. So you gave her that your kokuryu uh, moment to her. Yeah. So I, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I I don't want to compare my sake with kokuryu, but yes. <laughs> yeah, I think to her that was kokuryu. <laughs> so, and then you moved to New York. To open a sake brewery、uh, three years ago, I think. And、yes. so, why did you choose New York?、Uh, so at that time, there was no sake breweries in New York. You know, Brooklyn Club was not here yet, and、mm. uh, I was simple to think that okay, where should I go? Oh, okay, what what city has the most potential? Oh, New York is the biggest city in the U.S., and、uh, there's no sake breweries. Can I can I do this in New York? You know, if I、mm-hmm. can try in the biggest city in the U.S. and it works, that's great. If it's not, at least I feel the biggest, right? Right. <laughs> so, so that was, you know, that was probably the biggest reason.、Mm. Right, because、uh, so many restaurants and many Japanese restaurants and their premium sake sold, so people are really pretty well educated about sake too. So you don't have to、um, try to find more. You know, sophisticated customers already, right? It's because market is more mature compared to places like Nashville. Although I heard Nashville is really changing on、yes. a daily basis right now.、Yeah. Yes, that's that's true. And then it's kind of funny, but the, on the day that I moved from Nashville to New York, I was driving, and my friend texted me that, "Hey, Shinobu, have you seen this article?" And then this was an article about Nashville's first sake brewery opening in next month.、Mm. Wow. Yeah, so Nashville was changing too. Yeah, right. But you really captured the right timing, I guess. And in a way, you know, you, you were the second sake brewery opened, but、uh, Brooklyn Kura probably showed already paved the way for you to succeed because the pie is already big, and you can add in, you can add、uh, the pie bigger, you know, the more like yeah, size, yeah, I, size I, of it. Yeah, I fully agree that I, you know, thanks to Blue Plankula, I don't know how many hours I saved by not answering the same question that probably they've been answering all the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and then、um, now you have a very compact, it's efficient, and a cool sake brewery, Bushwick Brooklyn,、uh, right around the corner of a studio,、um, normally. So, why did you choose Bushwick for your brewery location? Uh, so, oh, when I moved to New York, I decided that okay, New York is too big, so let's you know focus on one area, and then I picked Brooklyn. The reason being,、uh, Brooklyn, I I thought that Brooklyn has a more like a local loyal culture, and that's、mm-hmm. similar to what I had in Nashville. But people love made in local, so people loved made in Nashville. And、uh, you know, my, my sake was、uh, accepted in Nashville because it's made in local. And then I、mm. wanted to have a kind of similar similar culture. And then I picked Bush, Brooklyn. 
Oh, Brooklyn's too big for me. So I kind of Airbnb different neighborhood for a week. So mm. stayed in, in uh, Sunset Park, uh, Greenpoint, you know, or Bushwick. And the uh, first time I got off the subway at the Morgan Street station, right next to mm-hmm. Gobeltas, mm-hmm. I was like, okay, this is a place. I, <laughs> somehow, I loved it neighborhood and this neighborhood bushwick reminded me very much of my hometown koenji in tokyo mm. so it's like a, you know the the cross section of very traditional residential old neighborhood and today's hip and art kind of combined together and uh you know there's a lot of like cheap dive bars and then also yeah. there's a lot of you know or breweries, something like that. And uh, mm. I, I really liked this neighborhood on the first sight. And it was confirmed that two years ago, my mom came over, visited me, mm. and she told me the same thing, that, oh, this reminds me of her hometown, Koenji. Wow. So, yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Bushwick is pretty unique. And it's also a mixture of uh, industrial, actually, their warehouses and factories, so I can see them. And it's, it's very interesting, very cool, very artistic. And there are so many artists, actually, live mm-hmm. there still. But uh, at the same time, Koenji, um, mm-hmm. it's one of the coolest upcom- up-and-coming towns, right, in Tokyo. So Nishiogikubo, Koenji, and those places on the Chuo line, yep. it's, it's becoming really cool too. So in that mm-hmm. sense, it's the same. Yeah. Bushwick and Koenji are both up and coming. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, I'm a very local person. And then whenever I go back to Tokyo, I don't leave Koenji. I don't even take a subway. You know, I stayed in the, <laughs> my hometown and I just go to the different izakayas in the neighborhood. And then now here in Bushwick, I do the same thing, that I don't mm. take subway often and I just stay in the neighborhood. Right. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and uh, so, well, now let's talk about, uh, you know, about your brewery itself. So what challenges did you come across uh, before opening the brewery? Um couple of weeks ago i mean you're still in the process of soft opening but you know i mean i would have no idea how to open the sake brewery it's not just a brewery but sake brewery in the middle of bushwick so um so first of all i heard that there was very it was very hard to get um licenses so yes. how so so it's it is not that hard in terms of the paperwork Paperwork is tedious, but it's straightforward. The, the challenge is the timing and the process. So in order for you to apply for the uh, you know, alcohol manufacturing license, first, you need to have a lease in place. You need to have a location because license mm-hmm. is attached to the location and also the design of the, the Blue Alley. So you need to have a, a lease in place that means you have to start paying the rent right mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. uh yeah but license allows you to start producing alcohol so you cannot do anything until you get the license so there's a mm-hmm. there's a gap between when you apply for the license and until you get the license approved and mm-hmm. uh it, in, in our case it took eight months 
Right. So, yeah, during the eight months, I was not able to make anything apart from, you know, continue building out the space. Oh, mm. but no revenue, nothing. And also the challenging part is you never know how long it takes because it's, it's like, you know, waiting for your green card kind of situation that, you know, first come, first served, but first come, first served means when you apply, right? So now, right. Pe- you know, and average, historical average tells you that it's probably take six months. It's probably take 10 months, but nobody knows until you right. actually get the license. So you mm. cannot plan ahead either that people ask me, you know, while I was waiting for the license, hey, when is your opening day? When, when, <laughs> when, yeah, when will we be ready? And then I was like, okay, I'd love to know that. I'd love to have that right. answer so that I can plan ahead. But mm. yeah, that's, so I think that's that, crazy. What, yeah. Eight so months and you, wait, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, it's just a eight months to keep paying rent. I don't know how many thousand dollars you you have been paying, but it's it's crazy because you even don't know you can get licenses, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah so well, but well, congratulations on the eight months. Thank it could have been worse. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's way. true. That's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah, and I knew that my fellow Bluealies in New York they went through the exact same process and uh, I knew somebody from the Blue Ali, you know, owned by a big company and then they also have to wait eight months. So my friend told me that if they cannot bribe the state legal authority or do anything, then there's no no chance that I can get anything faster. So mm. don't worry, you are not the expe- exception. So that's good. <laughs> right. Wow. And I also heard that, uh, you know, for sake brewery, are, the sake is, in terms of licensing, uh, sake is both categorized as wine and beer, right? Yes. So maybe you can explain. Yeah. Um, so yeah, sake. Well, there there are two types of licenses. One is federal, and the other is state. So under the federal license, sake is considered as a beer to make and wine mm-hmm. to sell. So we <laughs> have to have two different licenses for that. And mm. according to the New York State, sake is wine. So both to produce sake and to sell sake, I need to have a winery license. Well, that was different when I was in Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee. They consider sake as beer. So I needed to have a brewery license. So it's, you know, it's all over the world, all over the mm. place. Wow. So we had to take um, two each, two, two separate licenses for uh, from the state and the federal so and i'm sure that comes they're issued at different times i don't know which which were issued first federal or state well we get a federal first and then state later yeah Mm, yeah interesting yeah Yeah. okay uh well but i i i don't know i mean the sake probably would never have independent category and in wonder, you know, under one kind of rule. So if you apply for sake brewery, that could have been much, much simpler. But yeah. now whoever wants to start a sake brewery here, they have to go through two separate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the same was true for the side alleys. 
long time and finally Saidali get their own own category and mm. uh, that yeah that gives them a little bit of the freedom to do whatever they want to do so i think you know it's just a matter of time that eventually people will give up and hey yeah sake is a thing so we need to right. handle sake as its own way probably right. well I think the reason the the cidery has got the special category is that it's going to contribute uh, the local agriculture, right? So if uh, yeah, it, the, the governments, local governments, realize that it, sake requires a lot of rice, and if they're grown locally, that could be a special you know source of income. So yeah, the problem is yeah. New York does not grow rice, so maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's global warming. But we'll see. Yeah. I mean, oh, in, in Japan, that all over the you know, unless it's in Kyushu, rice grows so well. That's in, true. That's true. Yeah. So, anyways, so that's another show we can we can have and discuss the agricultural <laughs> production sake sake rice. Um. So, how do you set up your production equipment uh, without regular sake equipment manufacturers? Because in Japan, it's kind of like standard setup, yes. right? But you don't yes. have any. Yes. Uh, so I was lucky to be uh, introduced to uh, one uh, stainless steel manufacturer uh, called Agile Stainless, uh, located in Portland, Oregon. Uh, so mm-hmm. somehow through my network, I got introduced to them, and then they were very much willing to help me to prototype a specific equipment for sake making. So they were willing to learn how sake process work, and then you know we brainstorm together to how to design the equipment from the scratch. And mm. uh, that that yeah, that stainless steel manufacturer has a great customer base in Brooklyn. So Blueally is like Gleam and Fibolo. They use uh, the equipment from that company, and also mm. like the craft yeah, like a New York Natto company Nurture, uh, mm-hmm. and then also the yeah. new uh, Macaulay Blueally in Greenpoint, Hannah Macaulay. They, they also get the, the same uh, equipment from the same company. Mm, wow. What's yeah. the name of the company? Agile Just, uh... Stainless. Okay, Agile Stainless. Yeah. So, listeners, yeah. if you're planning to open a sake brewery, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. may be I a mean, good place. Yeah, yeah I visited their uh, you know, uh, factory in Portland, Oregon, and it was very interesting, like a cool hipster kind of stainless steel manufacturer. So it was interesting. <laughs> Right, because Oregon has so many uh, craft breweries, so that yeah. totally makes sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and the uh, yeah, the wait. challenge I had was uh, to learn the process engineering aspect of the brewing. So I was, I myself was never been an engineer, uh, especially on the physical side. And but in order for me to talk, you know, intelligently with a manufacturer, at least I need to have a base understanding of the principles and then concept. So I had to learn the you know process and the mechanical engineering things by myself. And then I, I enjoyed that, but it was kind of tough. Mm, right. So so thanks to Nissan, you didn't expect you could you could use <laughs> that knowledge and experience about uh, I think the operation management in the Yeah that's true. That's true. Production. Yeah. Right. Okay. And uh, and also you never had a formal training in brewing sake. So, no. how, yeah, so how do you deal with, uh, like, technical questions in the absence of, like, uh, you know, brewmaster to learn from? So my approach is similar to how I, you know, all worked with a stainless steel manufacturer, but I just go back to the basic principle and then, you know, 
force myself to learn the basic first and then understand the you know the concept and the underlying principles so like you know chemistry or biochemistry for the sake making itself and uh, you know to design the brewery you at least need to understand the physics and the mechanical you know engineering portion and uh, to actually build a place you need to know you know carpentry plumbing electrical work those kind of thing and every time i come up with some new question i normally go back to like a high school textbook and uh, refresh <laughs> my memory okay well what's that yeah up to the point that at least i understand what that means uh and then of course the good thing about sake making is uh you know in japan sake industry is heavily regulated by the central government uh and uh, the central government plays a fairly uh you know, big role in the industry. The flip side is all the researches or like academic papers are available to public because it's a government mm. work. So if I, you know, Google any technical question about sake making, I usually go find at least one or two research papers talking about that in very technical way. And again, you know, having a document available and being able to understand the document is different things. I need to learn more to understand the document, but at least there's a reference available and I can go in and learn from that. The, mm. the, yeah, the, the catch is everything is in Japanese, right? right. So that's, that, yeah, that's a challenge. But, but at least, you know, I, so far, all the questions that I have in my process there is no, probably one of two cases that I didn't find any research papers about that. But, you know, sake industry has been there for like thousand years. So there's a collective knowledge available. Mm, right. Yeah. 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 And like you said, uh, you know, the Japanese government uh, shares not just information and research papers and stuff, but also they are open to share, you know, the East, certain type, types of East, and you can buy nationwide. Yes. That's yeah. what I heard, yeah. right? So yeah. there's no secret in the yeah. way. And then, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then also the, the community is very supportive. So it's like a big family. So, you know, I, I met uh, many sake brewers in Japan and they are like really you know, helpful. And uh, they think I'm crazy doing sake making here in Brooklyn. But at the same time, they are really, <laughs> you know, helpful. So if I have any like a specific question, they can, you know, run a test or do something and then that's really good local beer and then other like alcohol making community in Brooklyn is also great supportive so mm. you know if i have any fermentation related questions i can talk to any any breweries in the neighborhood and then they they are ready to help so so far i i've been very much you know i, I really appreciate the, this community support on in Japan mm. and also in Brooklyn. Right. Well, it sounds like uh, you're making sake, which by itself is a good experience, but you're also experiencing life through communicating with people and get to know the great people and mm -hmm. building a new community. So, yeah, that's awesome. All right. So uh, let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll talk about Shinobu's unique sake. So please stay with us.
Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. The knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan Asian to American, and that is why they are located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Coin's Tribeca Showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view the exquisitely designed tableware and the Welsh natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit corin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japanese podcast live from studio. Not the studio today, in my apartment in Bushwick,、uh, in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And I'm your host, Aki Kotema, and my guest today is Shinobu Kato, who is the owner and brewer of the brand new and second sake brewery in New York City called sake,、uh, Kato Sake Works in Bushwick, Brooklyn. So, we've been talking about your, how you set up your brewery, but now、uh, let's talk about your sake itself, which I tasted and I found amazing. So,、uh, first of all, you use Kalos rice for your sake. And Carlos is a eating rice and not a classic rice used to make sake. So, why did you choose Carlos rice? Okay, so I go a little bit technical here, but Carlos is one of the most popular medium grain rice varieties available in the US.、Uh, and、uh, born in California in 19, you know, the middle of 1900s or something like that, before the war, after the war, something like that. Uh, and then, as Akiko san, you mentioned, it's not、uh, sake rice, it's a, a table rice or a co- cooking rice.、Uh, but the、uh, ancestor of this Kalos rice、uh, roots back to the now famous, now popular sake rice called Omachi. So, Omachi is quite popular now, and then you can find a lot of great sake made with Omachi rice. But, This is the, the, you know, the, the, the ancestor of Carlos. And、uh, during the, the first wave of the Japanese immigration to, to the United States, people brought rice from Japan. And then that's、uh, like a selected variety of omachi called wataribune.、Mm-hmm. And then that rice is a short grain rice and hard to grow in the climate of California. At the same time, US was、uh, tried to pro-、uh, increase the production of rice in the uni- United States. And、uh, there w a s a couple of different regions like L- Louisiana,、uh, Carolinas, and、uh, California that they tried to grow more rice.、Uh, somebody found the rice in Louisiana called the Lady Rice. And that's a long grain, like a typical native rice in Louisiana. And、uh, the, that Long grain rice from Louisiana and the short grain rice from Japan, Wataribune, are cross bred. And here we have a、uh, Carlos. And by the way, this、uh, Omachi to Wataribune went to another famous sake rice called、uh, Yamada Nishiki. So Yamada Nishiki and Carlos are kind of、uh, somewhere closely related. Right. And,、uh, yeah. and it's and a, Yamada Nishiki is a super premium, the most.、Yeah. Premium sake rice. So, yes. 
yeah. Like this uh, potential in Carlos' yes. face. Yeah. Well, when it comes to the sake making, Carlos is not as great as Yamada Nishiki. So there's a lot of you know challenges that I I have to make a good sake from Carlos. But I like the story of this, you know, rise or history of this, you know, Japanese immigrating them to to the U.S. with you know handful of rice, and then I think they had some dream in the U.S. and then they also had challenges during the war, something like that. And then also on the American side, you know, there are people who try to, you know, include and welcome this immigration from the, you know, one of the small Asian countries. And voila, we have a hybrid called the Calos that is so popular in, in the United States. And without having a Carlos, I don't think we have a, a California law at the corner deli in nowadays, mm, right? right. And, and if I can make a sake, uh, like a casual sake using the same rice and make that sake, you know, as accessible as spicy tuna roll or California roll, I think that's something. So I, I really want to focus using this Carlos rice. Right. Yeah, and I, I heard it actually, Carlos accounts for 90% of California's total rice production by mm-hmm. quantity. So that's like America. We're very American. Yes. And but I'm also curious about, you know, you use the water from New York, and uh, it's known for being the best in the US. Uh, it may be contentious, but I believe that's the best because I'm from here. But um, <laughs> how suitable is the New York City water for sake brewing? So New York City water, you know, known no for good pizza and bagel. It's a very soft water, uh, one of the softest in the United States. And uh, if you're a sake geek, you know the uh, sake region called the Nada, famous for dry, uh, powerful sake. And then they have a good hard water. While Japan average, the typical water in Japan is a little bit softer side. And then mm-hmm. there's a soft water region in Japan known for beautiful sake like Hiroshima. You know, they have a very soft, you know, or sweet, or uh, delicate sake uh, thanks to the soft water. And the New York mm-hmm. water is similar to that kind of water. So New York sake tends to be softer than, you know, uh, softer and sweeter than drier and uh, powerful. Uh, and then I, I, I like that the fermentation is slow or soft water does not have a lot of minerals, which is a nutrient to the yeast to ferment. Uh, so the mm-hmm. fermentation tends to be slow and gradual, but that helps to have a very delicate flavor at the end of the fermentation. Mm, right. Well, that makes sense. And it's, uh, yeah, the delicateness is uh, the advantage of having soft water, which probably don't make it too alcoholic. And, uh, well, that's why you also get, I heard you don't dilute, right? Because you have no. a perfect level of alcohol thanks to the slow fermentation. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. So let's talk about sake that you produce. So what types of sake do you have? So right now at our small production brewery, we make three different types. Jumai, mm-hmm. Nigori, and Nama. So Jumai is the most basic uh, sake, filtered, clear sake with mm-hmm. uh, fruity, floral aromas, yet, uh, you know. So the Jumai, so basically, 
Wait, so, so, yep. so the, for listeners who are not familiar with sake, Jumai means a pure rice with no added alcohol. And yep. uh, Nigori is unfiltered, and Nama is unpasteurized. So you just yes. talked about Jumai, right? Yes. Yeah. So Jumai is a kind of one of the probably the most basic one out of those three. And then Nigori is uh, a hazy one with coarsely filtered. So it has a little bit of a sweetness from the fermented rice sediment. Mm-hmm. And then Nama is wool or unpasteurized, so it still all holds the original brightness and uh, you know loud burst of the flavors. So kind of you know interesting combination of the three different varieties. Right, and also uh, what's great about your sake is that it's the rice is milled down to sixty percent so of the grains. So that means your the category is Junmai, no, no, Ginjo Sake, right? Well, that's yes. more, yes. you know, that's like true. Ginjo is milled down to 60%, and then it's high flow. The above Ginjo is Dai Ginjo, but the more you mill down, the more it gets delicate, and um, as a result, it's expensive because you kind of, uh, you know, waste the outside, although the outside, outer side of the rice. Milled down, I used to for you know feed or something, but mm-hmm. yeah. The, but the point being, it's ginjo, so you yes. had jumai ginjo yeah. and ginjo nigori and ginjo nama. That is correct. That is correct. Well, you know, I didn't want to confuse my customers with throwing too many technical terms. I decided, okay, let's put just one word. It's simpler. And if I have to pick either jumai or ginjo, my sake tend to have more character of jumai than ginjo thanks to kalos so mm. i decided to use the word jumai right okay so how do you call the style of sake uh so i i just say it's fairly you know basic or simple so you know or my, my, like my Junmai Sake is like a textbook Junmai Sake uh, type of thing. Nothing fancy, nothing, you know, flashy. Uh, and uh, maybe this is my philosophy, but, you know, if you, you're new to beer, you don't want to try sour black IPA with lactose first, <laughs> but you want to familiarize yourself with IPA first, right? Mm, because right. there's so many things. And right now in the U.S., my typical customers are relatively new to sake. So instead of, you know, slowing a lot of valuables in it, I just want to give them an option to learn that, hey, this is a simple, basic Jumai sake. Uh, It's different from probably the sake that you had before, but this is a craft sake called Jumai. Oh, by the Mm. way, this is a a, uh, sake type called Nigoli. And it's simple, a little bit different from Jumai. And those are the differences. Which one do you like? Right. Mm. So at this stage, I'd like to go with a very basic of sake. Well, you know, I, I, I love to experiment a lot of weird stuff. So eventually I'll start making like a sour black IPA with lactose and a sake or something like that. <laughs> but before, before going there, I need to finalize, uh, and then I need to have a solid base of the basic sake. Mm, right. So based on authentic style, and then yeah. with local ingredients. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, and I, my impression was Yosek is very clean and uh, lots of flavors with balanced acidity. That was uh, pretty impressive to have good acidity. And uh, so I have a tasting note. So Yojumai had a cla very classic rice aroma, followed by crisp acidity and subtle sweetness, finished mm -hmm. with pleasant bitterness in my throat. And the Yonigori is not too cloudy. It's not like, you know, like yogurt cloudy. And it's lightly cloudy and not cloying which makes it food-friendly. That was what, what I thought. And, um, I mean, this unpasteurized um, namasake, which I think is an uh, advantage for you to be a sake producer in, in, in this country because to ship long distance, uh, you have to pasteurize sake to maintain that freshness and, you know, not get contaminated. So here in Brooklyn, you make amazing classic style uh, namazake. So it was very bright and lively. And um, yeah, that's what you look for in namazake. So mm -hmm. I was very happy with your products. Thank you very much. So. You, you're very good at uh, describing my sake. So maybe I should have you at the tap room and then you can sell our bottles. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, I'll take that. So, um, so what kind of food would you suggest to pair with your uh, sake? So apart from the typical, you know, Japanese cuisine, like, you know, you have a momo sushi shack next door and then they have a great sushi. So, you know, um, my sake works very well with this type of food. But apart from that, uh, I'd normally pair my junmai with a classic margarita pizza from Lobeltas. Mm. And uh, nigori, thanks to its sweetness and uh, a little bit of mouth coating of the rice, it works very good with the heat or like a spicy, but the chili spicy food. So, mm. you know, my, my there, there's a lot of great Mexican restaurants nearby. So I probably have like a taco al pastor or something like that with nigoli. Right. And then, yeah, nama is bright. So it kind of stands uh, out uh, against the loud food. So, like your uh, the Lobelta stinky little stinky pizza with garlic, <laughs> onion, <laughs> or like there, yeah, there's a food truck in front of the station, the lamb over rice. Mm -hmm. You know that kind of spicy food goes very well with nama. That's that's mm. my my typical selection. Right. Okay. I have to remember that and try <laughs> once everything's uh, open, and then I will go back and get. I don't know. Maybe yep. the nigori. I should try that with a spicy yeah. one. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting because it's really still, unfortunately, Japanese food and sake. And sake with Japanese food. There's the formula. It's not broken yeah. so easily. Yeah. So, yeah, I like the idea. Um, yeah, so um, there are many challenges in brewing sake in the U.S., but what do you think is the advantage of being outside Japan as a sake brewer? It's ironic to say this, but license. So although I, you know, complained about the licensing process here in the U.S., it's way much better than in Japan. In Japan, it's practically impossible to get a new license. Oh. So nobody can open a new brewery, new sake brewery in Japan. Interesting. Well, because mm -hmm. the sake, number of sake breweries are declining because I thought they're willing to encourage people to open more sake breweries. I think they tried to protect that industry. Huh. But by doing so, they are killing the industry in a yeah. way. Yeah. So yeah. I had an interesting story recently that 
there's a new sake brewery opening in France. Mm-hmm. Oh, and uh, they wanted to open a brewery in Japan, Tokyo, but they were not able to get the license. So they decided to open a brewery in France to export to Japan. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, that's something <laughs> I'm going to ask about to the Japanese government. <laughs> so if we find it something, I will do another episode yeah. on that. Yeah. Right. So, uh, so what is your mission of uh, Kato Sake Works? Um, in other words, what would you like to communicate to your customers through your sake? I, I think, you know, oh, so my typical customer is, is seller, right? She, you, you have not had a good sake before. Or maybe you had a sake before, but that was not like, oh, I really love sake. And what I want to tell is sake is a good thing if you know, if you have the access to the good sake. And, uh, you know, so please give, give us a second try, second chance, and drink good sake. And that might change your, you know, future drinking life. Uh, but this is my mission to make that type of sake available, accessible to the people mm. on the street in Bushwick. So that's that's my mission. Right. Yeah, that's very really great because I sometimes I'm surprised by, by myself pairing sake with non-Japanese food sometimes we are way better than pairing with wine or something. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it's not just for being Japanese trying to promote sake, but I think as a person who's interested in eating good food with the maximized value of eat and drink, I think it's important to educate people that people know how sake can be flexibly applicable to any kind of food. So, I believe, yeah. I believe. Right? So, um, you have a very uh, cute mini tasting room uh, <laughs> with three seats. And it was such a nice design space. So, so what's your plan for the tasting room operation uh, when our lives go back to normal? <laughs> when life goes back to normal. <laughs> when uh, is that? Yeah, yeah. I think when life will go back to normal and then everybody starts going out, maybe I should mm-hmm. open my tap room 24-7 for like a week so that everybody can celebrate. Right. Mm. <laughs> right. Well, actually, yeah. I heard uh, today that uh, the Governor Cuomo, his uh, yeah. recovery proposal for the economy uh, really emphasizes on, you know, um, tourism, including restaurants and bars, you know, encouraged to be open and thrive. Mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. worked after 9-11. So, yeah. I, yeah, I think it's a good idea. All right. So uh, where what's your plan for distribution of your sake? Uh, so we have a small production volume. So we'll start rolling out to the local liquor store and the restaurants. Uh, we had some initial conversation before this happened. So we mm-hmm. have to go back. The same is true with the problem. But we start from the local, and then once you know that's ready in Bushwick, we go to the next level. So that's how we are planning to do that. Okay, we'll see what happens then. Yep. And and uh, so and the sake market is growing rapidly outside Japan. And I heard in 2019 the U.S. was the biggest importer of Japanese sake, both in quantity and value. Um, so and the sake market grows in the U.S. The number of sake breweries is increasing domestically. 
too. Yep. So I heard it's about 20 breweries in this country to make craft sake. So how do you predict the future of sake breweries in the U.S. and in other countries outside of Japan? I don't know. I'm not good at predicting the future, but my hope is to have, you know, every single major city have their own local sake breweries. And if it's a big city like New York, two or three or more. And so that people has more access to the local sake, craft sake, so that they have more, you know, moment to learn that, oh, sake is very good. It's not like, you know, the the loving alcohol type of thing, <laughs> but it's a craft drink. So that's a moment that I hope that everybody in the U.S. can, or, you know, outside of Japan can experience. Mm, right. I really hope so, too. So, all right. So we're running out of time. So uh, where can we find your um, updates online and social media? Okay, so we, we, we mostly like Instagram and Facebook, Katosaki Works is our username, and also we have some uh, informational website. Uh, we have a local pickup order, and we are working on the delivery or shipment in the New York, so that's what we are uh, hoping to announce sometime soon. Okay, and then they can find it on your website, katosakiworks.com. It's K-A-T-O-S-A-K-E, works, katosakiworks.com. All right. So good luck, and I look forward to seeing you at the Asaki Brewery when everything's over in terms of the corona. So thank you so much for joining us today, Shinobu. Thank you very much, Akiko-san. So, see you soon. So listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japanneeds.heritageradionetwork.org or akikwatem.com. Japanneeds is... Uh, live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. I'm Jenny's Matt Patterson, and thank you for listening. I'll see you next week, and stay safe in good spirits. Japanese is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.